and we're live welcome back purgers oh my god we are at episode eight the giving time is here welcome to the pop culture theologians podcast season one we are um here recapping the purge television show which has just become a commentary on our current world um and where we're living uh we want to give a quick shout out to the engaged gaze who hosts us that's g-a-z-e um there's some amazing content on there want to give a shout out to uh another podcast on there called bible bitches check it out we are so excited that they host us and um marcy what happened this week so a lot's happened this week um hey everyone so it, it was actually really hard to kind of narrow it down to to three things um because the world's on fire so um if you want to see everything we're talking about definitely check us out on twitter uh my twitter handle is at i am the men who can john what's your twitter handle Oh, I totally forgot to give us the Twitter shout outs. It's minus <laughs> J Erickson 85 because I'm basic. You're so basic. Okay, so our top three this week that we came up with um, to kind of focus in on is let's let's start off with something light. Let's start off with our love of The Haunting of Hill House. I still haven't watched it. I, oh, my love of The Haunting of Hill House. I absolutely i'm obsessed with this show that i have a really like fucked up relationship with because it's terrifying and i keep watching it when i'm home alone and like the, the like lights start to dim and i'm like i should probably stop watching this but then i can't um but how that connects to the purge is the haunting of hill house is another horror show i think we mentioned this last week um John, are you in the purge? I'm in the purge. I just <laughs> live in Los Angeles, so there's a siren going by every, every five seconds. Right. So Haunting of Hill House is another horror show that's actually talking more about trauma than it is about, like, blood and gore. And I would venture to say that most horror is actually the human um, condition worked out, uh, in a, like the human trauma worked out in a way that like you're able to kind of get it out. So um, every major horror franchise that I can think of is talking about like trauma, but Haunting of Hill House is like, if This Is Us had a baby with um, The Conjuring, I guess, that's exactly how people have described it to yeah, me. Yeah, like I think that's the best way to describe it. Um, get out there, go watch it, tweet me. Um, I've actually retweeted a lot of stuff on horror and trauma and also on how the things that happen to us when we are young are the things that mark us, right? And we've talked a lot about that with Penelope. So um, I need to watch it. I'm going to watch it after the election. Definitely watch it when someone's home because I made the mistake of starting it on a night when Brent had a night shift and it was just me and my two dogs. And like, sorry, but like, Grizzly is not enough to keep me feeling safe. Like, I was like, and you live in Florida, so like, let's be real here. Speaking of Florida, the MAGA bomber is from Florida. So the FBI, I guess, has like narrowed its search for who we are calling the MAGA bomber. We're at eleven bombs, I think, because I just read maybe thirty minutes ago that another package was sent to CNN in New York um, and Diane Feinstein's office. Jesus fucking Christ. I like, sorry. Like I just, I'll put it this way. I, I've said this, like I'm Colombian, right? And I remember at the height of violence, um, I'm from Medellin, which is where Pablo Escobar was from. Please don't ask someone who's Colombian about Pablo Escobar. It's really fucking annoying. But here I am bringing it up. Um, I remember like in the nineties when Colombia was considered the most dangerous place in the world. This is the type of shit that made us dangerous. Like this is the type of shit that like, other countries would be like, of course we don't go to Colombia. Bombs are delivered to politicians, right? And so I'm having like a very hard time processing the way that like the American psyche is processing what's happened with the MAGA bomber. Like there has been, so if we're counting the two, we're at 12 attempted assassinations of democratic leaders. I Which is exactly how The Handmaid's Tale goes down, FYI. Yes, yes, but also is exactly how they're not reporting it on the news. Like everything is like, 
devices, like in a, like failed devices, and um, like the the focus is incorrect. This is attempted assassinations of opposition leadership. That is the stuff of like that's the stuff of nightmares. Like I just I don't understand it. Um, I'm extremely scared for democracy as a whole and I'm not being an alarmist like I'm a pessimist by nature y'all but like this is some next level shit so it's really next level do you remember when you were little like in the Atlanta Olympics bomb happened it was like the only thing that people covered and that was one bomb right we're at 12 bombs and people are like yeah but can we really like can, can we focus on some other shit right and this is probably just about divisiveness in the media like no this is not about this I mean, the way the media plays into this is Trump has used his propaganda machines to fuel a type of like dissent and madness that has led to this type of stuff. And like, I have this conversation with my brother, like, do we know for certain that the MAGA bomber is some crazy conservative Rush Limbaugh dude? Sure. We don't don't know that yet, but even if it wasn't, which I'm going to like, I'm going to spoiler the shit out of this for you. It is. Um, and it's a, it's a dude. It's not a woman. He's white. He's a white dude for sure. Uh, even if it wasn't, this is still a byproduct of this MAGA era in the U S so MAGA bomber, that's all this should be called. And we need to call it what it is. These are assassination attempts on the opposition. This is how the handmaid's tale starts. This is also actually something that happens in it's the third purge film, right? Yep. So yeah, these are Harry Potter. These are dark times, Harry. These uh, are dark times. And then our third thing, because I wanted to end on a bit of a high note, is Andrew Gillum legit handed DeSantis's ass in the second debate in Florida. And I know a lot of people that listen to this are not from Florida, but y'all need to YouTube the clip uh, of Andrew Gillum dropping a mic pretty much on a white supremacist Nazi. Uh, my favorite quote of the night was, yo, I'm not calling you racist. I'm just saying racist say you're racist. And I was like, yes, this is amazing. Um, I watched it like seven times. Yeah, no. And, and like, it has honestly brought me a lot of joy today. And again, going back to the MAGA bomber, um, we need people to start calling shit what it is. Andrew Gillum is one of the first to look at a white supremacist and say, you're racist and you're a white supremacist, right? We need to call the MAGA bomber what it is. It is it, like, that is terrorism. And so, you know, Andrew Gillum is a complicated candidate, um, but one of the problems Democrats have all the time is looking for like Superman candidates. We cannot afford that during this time in our history. So between a dude who potentially took Hamilton tickets, which by the way, so would I, uh, I just got Hamilton tickets this week and I'm very excited, or a white supremacist, I'm just going to take the dude who grabbed the Hamilton tickets. So fuck everyone else. I'm not having a discussion about it. What do you think about starting to talk about the purge, John? <laughs> can we? Can I do a spoiler alert to the person I'm going to purge, but speaking of racist <laughs> apologists real quick? Yes, let's do it. Bye, Megan Kelly. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. For the Thoughts and prayers, Megan Kelly. Why don't you have Tom Jones or whatever his name is on your show again to talk about conspiracy theorists in regards to Sandy Hook? Ugh, goodbye. Hashtag bye, Megan Kelly. Bye, girl. We are very excited to see you gone. So We're excited to see you gone. And with that, let's purge. Let's purge. broadcast system announcing the commencement of the annual purge sanctioned by the u.s government weapons of class four and lower have been authorized for use during the purge all other weapons are restricted government officials of ranking 10 have been granted immunity from the purge and shall not be harmed commencing at the siren any and all crime including murder will be legal for 12 continuous hours police fire and emergency medical services will be unavailable until tomorrow morning at 7 a.m when the purge concludes Blessed be our new founding fathers and America, a nation reborn. May God be with you all. All right, John, talk to me about Miguel and Penelope. So as we all know from the last episode, this is probably not my favorite storyline. Wait, it isn't my favorite (laughs) storyline. It's really boring. Um, So what we do uh, when we enter the episode, we find um, Miguel and Penelope and they are back at Pete's bar um, and having random conversations the word pancakes come up because you know they want pancakes because they want to have a normal conversation at the end of purge night which by the way penelope is not going to happen um and 
Um, the only thing that is the saving grace of this storyline is that Penelope is starting to kind of come out the other side of the rabbit hole in regards to the blue cult people. Yeah, agreed. I think she's finally having a bit of like a come down from the defensiveness and also like probably the adrenaline of the night, right? So yeah, I think she's, I think, I think Penelope's on her way out of the mental block that is joining a cult. And she also like summarized her and her brother's like journey in like one sentence when like she's talking to Peach. She goes, well, I couldn't deal with the fact that my brother was gone and I was lonely. So I joined the blue cult. Like (laughs) that was it. That's the storyline. Right, right. There you go. Right. And and when we get to a couple of the other things that happen at the bar later on in the podcast, I want to touch on that because I think it's important. I think it really is because we to come full circle, right? Um, John and I traditionally write about religious experiences in the U.S. and how it connects to politics and whatnot. This is important because this show starts and ends with how you heal from stuff you don't want to like talk about, right? So, um, so the show pivots really quickly, right, to Jenna, Rick, and Lila. You okay? This, uh, this, first of all, that fitted tea. No. Um, <laughs> okay, Rick looked good in this episode. I felt, I was like, man, I really should not have been. We're on the other side of the Rick debate now, clearly. We are, but I just want to say I was right. And You I'm were gonna, right. I'm going to be saying that this whole podcast. So. Yeah. By the way, everything that we predicted in our previous episodes have like come true. Um, and when we get to our least favorite character and we're the character we really hate right now, you'll know who we're talking about. Um, we're, we were right. But what we do is we come back to the household with Jenna, Rick, and Lila. And Jenna feels unsafe. And Rick and Lila are at each other's throats. They really don't, you know, there's this conflict everywhere. And then all of a sudden the neighbor dude, um, his wife comes and is like ringing on the doorbell and they're fighting and she gets purged by someone behind her. But Lila like totally tells her that her husband is dead and which causes her to get purged because Lila, as you're starting to see in this whole episode and there's a little twist at the end of really the fact that she's really complicit in the purge and she's she's partaking in it and she feels better because the neighbor person um, was purged but she was purged with the truth that makes it better right and so I think um I think there's a couple things that stand out from kind of like this first exchange between Lila and Rick so Lila says like like obviously like she's not having a great night but she doesn't feel great about tomorrow either and so we've talked a lot about like what happens the day after the purge right and this is kind of a connection that you don't just get to turn off the purge the day after right like there's there's consequences there's also trauma um and then Rick makes a hilarious joke because he's like yeah you might want to fire the help and I was like all right not the time or the place Rick oh Catalina I know shout out to Catalina and then um I thought this was funny Rick's like let me make you a sandwich and I was like I was in the middle of the purge she literally was just in the middle of the purge and he's like can I make you a CB&J Right. So what sandwich would you have as you're waiting potentially to be purged? Definitely something with like turkey. Of course. You're so basic. Oh I'm so God. basic. I would just have like a regular turkey sandwich. I was going to say bologna, but then I knew you'd really judge me. I really, really would. Um, granted, I'm watching the new season of Making a Murder, so I'm trying to understand people from Don't tell me anything. I won't, but I'm saying I, I'm trying to understand those are my people. Wisconsin better, and so bologna makes Wisconsin. What do you mean they're from Wisconsin? <laughs> so I think I would probably have a tomato sandwich because it's my favorite sandwich in the whole world. Um, Who else makes tomato? Oh, Harriet the Spy. Well, obviously, that's where I got it from. <laughs> obviously. Okay, we're so sorry, listeners. <laughs> so, um... This kind of Rick, Lila, mildly friendly exchange, it still feels super tense, um, switches to this flashback of Lila, right? And we're supposed to, because I'm going to break through the walls here, we're supposed to think she's getting ready for her wedding, right? She's wearing this gorgeous white dress, and her dad's giving her all these, like, pep talks, and, like, she's like, I'm so nervous, like, I can't bring myself to do it, and it didn't take me very long to figure out we're definitely not getting married, we're definitely about to go to some 
twisted purge party. Right, like a very stylized purge quinceañera. Exactly. (laughs) She got a purge quinceañera. Right, because Catalina looks like she was, like, involved and, like, I mean, you know, it's... it's But it was very much um, in the way in which Catalina played it. I was really... And that's when I saw later on, after you realize what Lila's really about to do, um, Catalina looks at her as a ver- in a very certain way, like the pre-purge. Like, this is who you are. This is the child I raised. This well, is and she says to her, when when Lila's like, I'm, I can't do this, she goes, just do whatever, like, whatever's in your heart, kind of. Like, you don't, like, there was a moment where Catalina is giving her an out. Like, you don't have to do this. And that is true. Like, I mean, look, I'm not going to pretend that if you are born into an NFFA family of significant power, that there isn't some agency problems, right? But I do think as problematic as Lila's parents are, that they love her. I don't think they were going to take a gun to her head and make her purge, right? Yeah, Um, I don't know. It was really interesting. I mean, it was very much of that family dynamic, which we saw in the last episode of why she was really upset that her family was purged. Right, right. and so. You know, I think like, I think this is one of those moments where the storytelling was, was, it's not that it was sloppy, it's just obvious we're on the eighth episode and it's obvious where this is going. But I do still think this is important background to understand Lila and the Lila we're about to get to, right? Um, Rest in peace. Rest in peace, spoiler alert. Um, So then we get back to Penelope and Miguel at the bar, right? And then this is where Penelope starts to deconstruct. And this is something that I really identified with, right? So I thought of you during this part. Did you? Because like, look, I've been struggling with the Penelope Miguel um, storyline, not because I don't, like, obviously when this show started, what attracted me to it was this narrative of the cult. And I think it kind of deviated in a way that I was kind of like, this is dragging. But here it picks back up for me because Penelope asked Pete about his life as a cop, right? And, um, and she starts to spew her her apologetics, her talking points about the purge and the cult, right? So she's like, crime has gone down since the cult has started. And Pete's like, yeah, no, no, it hasn't. Uh, and then um, he says to her, you know, I lost my brother on the purge night. It was this random stranger who legit just sliced his head off, right? So he's building bridges with her, which this is actually how you help someone who's in a cult um, or who's in a mental state with a group of people who are unhealthy, you build bridges. And so he is building this bridge with Penelope of like, I know the loss that you felt. Like I also had like an extremely random and like violent loss of a loved one to the purge, right? And then Penelope mentions, you know, we're part of that very special group of the original purge families, right? And, um, and Pete breaks it to her kind of a little bit that like, I think it's his face because I don't even think he says anything, but you can see kind of the devastation on his face because he knows that the OPFs, I think that's what they're called, the original Purge families, that that was not something random, right? Like they were chosen. Right. They were chosen. Um, So I, I thought that was important. And as this episode develops, we get further and further into dismantling the cult, right? But something that I think was important was to slowly give Penelope some of this, some of this fact soup as she- Some tough love. She needed a little bit of tough love. A little bit of tough love, right. Right. Um, And then we- Because Pete really breaks it down for her. He does. And I think what's important is, so for me- Um, when I was in a very super orthodox, crazy-ass Catholic group, it was not the people on the outside who were able to get me out. So I literally, every friend from high school, like I had an ex-boyfriend who also tried really hard. Like I had a bunch of people who were like, yo, like wake up, like you need to get out, like you need to get out. I could not hear them. It was people from on the inside who had been through what I had been through, who were now on the other side that I was able to connect and build bridges with, right? Um, so I think this is extremely good writing. Um, and it makes sense now why we've kind of fleshed out this Pete the Cop character. Yeah, I was wondering about him. And he's too well-known of an actor to have just been like a one-off. Yeah, he makes me blush. I think he's so handsome. <laughs> me too. I loved him in Nurse Jackie. I know, I know. All right, so moving back to Rick, Jenna, and Lila. Uh, 
I'm sorry, I'm so heartbroken over this, but you were right, so whatever. Um, so <laughs> Rick, so Rick brings Lila a grilled cheese sandwich and says, "Cheers to starting over." And you know, they kind of start having this random little heart to heart, and um, you know, he mentions that you know the deal with her dad, and you know, clearly. I think what Rick is seeing now, because we're seeing a different Rick, is that he thinks that he can get through to Lila. He can get through to the Lila that they had the threesome with, basically. And Lila realizes that Rick is really only interested in her money. He doesn't really care about getting um, to her. And Rick, you know, admits that he doesn't believe in it anymore. You know, this project that we all saw back in like episode four or five, whatever it was, where they made the deal with Rick's, um, I'm sorry, with Lila's father and feels that it's really taken from them. And Lila reminds him that it was all of their dreams and that they're all partners and she asks for a deal. And Rick, weirdly enough, whereas we saw back in the previous episodes, he's like, I have to check with Jenna. It's kind of like a full 360 because before Rick took that meeting without her and Jenna said like, oh, you were going to have the meeting without me. And this is a very different Rick. We saw a very specific Rick in like one through five and now five through 10 episodes, five through 10, we're seeing a very different side of this person that we thought we had pegged. So I think like what we're seeing is we're seeing true colors come out. Right. And so I think that, I think Rick is trying to connect a bit with Lila. I also think he is the only one who's aware that she's in imminent danger. Right. But he's also like, to a certain extent, feeling out where she stands in regards to her dad, money, power. Um, and so when she brings up, right. Cause I think he brings up the deal from the perspective of like, I feel like we're in too deep and like, I need to take a step back and like, this might not be what we wanted. And Lila goes hard on it. And I think that is indicative of someone who is struggling to hold on to the threads of something she wants, who is not used to being told no. Right. So if, if all of a sudden she doesn't have the power over Jenna and Rick. So if he's like, honestly, we're not going to take that money. And like, we're just going to move on with our lives. Lila has no power at this point. Right. And so I think that, um, this is one of those moments where whatever we thought about Lila and Rick, this is who they are, right? This is exactly who they are. They're this young couple that had a dream and is really trying to get through to it. Right, right. Well, and then Jenna asked for like a private moment with Lila. Uh, I knew. Oh, it was it was wonderfully acted between the two of them. I really do. I really want to give a shout out to um, Hannah and Lily, right? Those are the actresses' names. I thought they did a really good job. I really love Jenna. I think she probably is one of my favorite characters. I agree, actually. I think um, I think for a while, I couldn't figure out who we're supposed to identify with on this show. And I think it's Jenna, right? I think, I think Jenna is the, hopefully the protagonist and everyday woman man in this show. It's her moral um, compass, I think, we're following. Right. And I'm I'm pretty sure, actually, Rick and Jenna are there. They're kind of at the heart of, like, the moral compass. So, um, but no, I, her performance is just beautiful in this episode. Yeah. So, is, so is Lily Simmons, who plays Lila. I would say this is such a stunning performance from her. Um, again, she does nothing but break my heart in all of her work. It is just really great. Yeah, and this scene with Jenna and Lila basically goes down to the fact that Jenna really tells her she can't live in this chaos anymore. The chaos that she saw with the purge to back at her own house. Um, I think she really uh, pushes that on to Lila in a way because her family is NFFA and this deal and all that stuff. And she just wants to make it take off and start anew. And so she breaks it up with her. It can't go on. She's tired of all these games and she doesn't really need to be protected anymore. I think that that's another theme that we saw the earlier part of the show. Lila offered her some type of protection, but now I think Rick has come full circle and he's offering it to her. And you really see the pain in Lila's eyes because this is probably not the best time to break up with your quasi thruple girlfriend couple. I don't know. Um, but what happens is, is, you know, Lila's already lost her parents and now she just lost kind of Jenna, who she actually probably was the one person that she loved the most. And, but she also lost like the couple that she really enjoyed being with. Well, and I would say something that I found spectacular in this um, dynamic is 
Jenna is choosing between two equal rivals when it comes to like, so the show managed to somehow make Lila and Rick equal partners in power and not just like choosing between a dude and a woman. And um, that is beautiful writing because they didn't gender what Jenna needs. Jenna made a decision between two equal like persons. And I thought that was great. Um, and not easy to do, particularly because we're we're dealing with um, like traditionally attractive specimens of their gender, right? So to make them both equal in power was really well written. Um, and so after Jenna breaks up with Lila, we get this Lila flashback. And again, this goes back to trauma, right? The fact that Lila is going through this heartbreak, right? And that it's triggering her back to trauma is indicative of the fact that we are this is a show that is talking about the collateral damage of trauma. So, and what it does. And what it does to us as a person. So on the micro and the macro, as a person and as a society. So we get this flashback. Something I notice, which I keep like a keen eye on lately is, so Lila's dad is wearing a lapel pin for the NFFA, right? And that is a visual cue to like, so Donald Trump wears a very specific uniform when he's out, right? It's the flag lapel pin and the red, um, the red tie. And so for me, that's just kind of a visual cue of a conservative. Um, it's also very like third Reich, like yes, the, within the NFFA as yes. well. I mean, the Eagle and all that stuff that we saw in the movies. It's very, it has a lot of ties like most of these films do to like Nazi Germany. A hundred percent. And I think even the color palettes inside of the Stanton home are the meant gray, to- The clean looks, yeah. The clean looks. It's meant to invoke- um, so I, I think back to one of my favorite films is Inglorious Bastards. And so if you think of the final scene of Inglorious Bastards in the theater, you have women and men in black and white dresses and then these flags, right? Everything's a stark contrast. There's no warmth whatsoever. And so we have this like image of Lila in front of this mirror and her dad's giving her this story about how she used to be when she was a kid, afraid of riding horses. And so he weeded her out until she was no longer afraid and it became her favorite thing that like it's a beautiful metaphor for how like overcoming fear is extremely important and becoming who you are the problem is he's talking about purging right? he's like oh by by the way like you may stand in front of this person that you want to that you're going to kill for as long as you want but you're still going to kill them right and um and so here we get back to so white dresses um so fun fact the white dress wasn't actually introduced into like the modern psyche until Queen Victoria chose it for her wedding for uh, for her wedding with Prince Albert. But in the in the human psyche and in our in our tales of today, white is virginal, right? And this ceremonial lead up to the purge, quince, which is what I'm going to call it, um, is is quince. It's a quince. It's a Selena themed quince. Um, it's, that would be a fun key. Oh, you know what? No, I'm going <laughs> to, no, Selena was shot. Jesus. Um, but there's these like images that are very reminiscent of, um, like Orthodox rituals, right? Catholic or Eastern Rite rituals, which is the dress, right? This like large gathering of elders, um, the virginal aspect of it. Um, and something that I think of often is that rituals often are used to to kind of like give a glaze to systems of power right so having grown up really catholic the rituals that were used in mass and how beautiful it was so um the vestments right the um music the incense um the participation rituals right the kneeling the standing the kneeling the standing um, oh yeah yeah i would be kneeling right? So all of that masks a very putrid center, which is uh, rituals that uphold white male supremacy, that oppress women and any other like marginalized group. Um, and so when I see ritual, I, I tend to have like serious, serious, like, I don't know how to even explain it. Like I have a visceral reaction to it. Um, and so we see ritual being used here by the Stantons in a very similar way that we see um, a lot of religious institutions use it today. Also, it's very symbolic in the, in the fact that her, it's like a very traditional when you look at the wedding ceremony, right? So she's wearing 
white and it's giving themselves to like another force this person well, and, and, and her dad gives her away to this like almost like father figure which is the purge or whatever you want to go this metaphysical like being that they worship when you go back to the blue cult people and like the invisible i'm sorry the invisible and so you're really having a father give his daughter uh, a pure virginal person to this invisible force that is via the mechanism of the purge to become a fully fledged NFFA member. Hundred percent. And um, like I've said before, I have a ton of friends who like became priests and stuff like that. And I remember some of the language surrounding this ultimate sacrifice. Right? Was you die to yourself? Right. Yeah. The the most beautiful gift is the death to self. And so um, if the Lila in the mirror is the real Lila, is the, the Lila that was like, I can't do this, I don't want to do this, then the moment that she decides to do that first quinceañera purge is the moment she dies to self. Yeah, she no longer exists. It's very much like her rebirth. It is her, she is rising from whatever heap of ashes into this new member that like joins this NFFA society. 100%. So we go from that scene, um, which I do have to say I appreciate because of what we, what really happens to Lila at the end of the episode, because we're, Although I think if you can read into it and you watch a lot of television, you kind of already know what's going to happen to her, but her story closes out. And that's what a lot of the writing in the show has been about. The, their, their plot threads aren't dangling. They have a lot of characters. They have a lot of stuff moving. Stuff is moving together really quickly, but the plot holes with like uh, Jane's boss to the matron saints to all these other people they're closing them off in a certain way and I do want to appreciate that and give a shout out to the writers because it's really hard when you have your a storylines your b storylines and then your c storylines yep yep so we go back to Penelope who is finding she's getting her bitch back okay that's what I'm gonna call it she's <laughs> definitely getting her bitch back and she starts to have a lot of anger and what we see when we study or like really listen to people that are coming out of cults you know it's very much Kubler-Ross it's the signs of grieving you know anger the stages are there um, and anger is really important because you have to be angry and she's angry at the world but I really think the actress as well as the character she's more so angry at herself and she's realizing that yeah. through what a lot of pete tells her um and ultimately tells her to change out of the robe it's a trigger for her she's still in this nasty ass robe and so by changing out of it and understanding that she's no longer that penelope she has her brother now the reason why she joined the blue cult people to find this invisible and purge herself was because she was lonely and she didn't know how to process her brother being there that's no longer her option she is now with her brother and someone tells her so she changes out it's a shedding of the skin it's like she's actually free and now she puts on the clothes and she's actually penelope again the penelope we saw in the flashbacks with henry Right. It's almost like for her to be able to hear what Pete's about to say to her, she needs to no longer be this like walking living symbol of who she was. And, and like, as a person who's been through that, like I, I can feel for how difficult that moment of transition is. Um, like for a lot of us uh, who have left like evangelical or Orthodox religion, there's something that you remember as the moment you took some shit off. Right. Or the moment you stopped doing that one thing and all of a sudden you felt like a different person. Um, so like for me, the big one was when I stopped going to mass, but also when I put my rosary away, I no longer wanted to hold on to a rosary as a sign of anything. Um, and, and so I think for Penelope taking off that robe, similar to me taking off a crucifix or, or getting rid of my rosary, it's that moment um, that you, you are fine. It doesn't mean you're ready or you're healed or any of that. It's just an outward symbol Step of one, right. Outward symbol of an inward reality that you are ready to start the process. Right. Yeah. And she is ready. And I, uh, Ooh, we got a long way to go with Penelope. We gotta, we gotta take her. We gotta, we gotta do watch and wait into exhale. We got, we got some work to do with Penelope. <laughs> She's got to light that bus on fire. She has to have her Angela Bassett moment, as we all call it. Right. <laughs> so who do we go to next? 
So after, so we have like a tiny little, it's like barely a scene change to Rick and Jenna. Um, so uh, obviously Jenna and Lila stop talking after Jenna breaks up with her. Um, but Rick hears something in the hallway, goes out to look for it. Um, as he goes off to look for it, Jenna's kind of fumbling around with shit on the bed and she finds the dagger that Rick took at the Stanton house in his pocket. So obviously this is like a, a red flag uh, foreshadowing of what's to come. And then we get back to Penelope, right? And this is um, where the deconstruction happens. Ch -ch 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 changing. Uh, right. Um, things will never be the same. <laughs> so Pete pretty much just tells her the cult is bullshit. Uh, he breaks down uh, something that I called episode one, the cult is funded by the NFFA. It is a long con and it is a way to purge people. Um, boom. Boom. Oh. Mic drop. Bye. Called it. Um, so Penelope's face goes through all the faces that DeSantis had during the Gillum debate, right? Like, like she's like, no, oh shit, fuck. Like she goes through right. everything, right? So he tells her, Pete the cop tells her, like, look, like it's funded by the NFFA. They've done auditions for good leader Travis. Like that's an actress funded by the NFFA. Um, and then they troll jails, hospitals, homeless shelters. They find the people with a profile who would be easily influenced by a cult and then they purge them. And if you listen to episodes like one through three, I talked a lot about the fact that like cults have a very specific profile of person they're looking for. So they this is what they do. This is what they do. They tend to look for people who have broken homes, who have um, struggles with identity, um, people who have anger and trauma in their past are much more susceptible for a million reasons to orthodoxy and the need to, to, to be led, right? To just hand. So I think the best way to describe this, right, is um, when you get into these organizations that kind of take over your life, I want you to picture like the most traumatic moments in your life, right? Like where you were like, I can't even decide what to eat today. I can't decide what to do. When depression takes over, when trauma takes over, when fear takes over, you, you function at, if you're high functioning, you get everything done that you need to survive in the bare minimum. If you're low functioning, you barely get shit done. So when someone comes into your life and is like, I will tell you what to eat, how to sleep, what to wear, what to think, it is, there is a comfort in that for people who are hurting. Um, because it takes away having to decide anything for your, yourself. A hundred percent, right? Um, a, a really sad example. Um, I had a friend in undergrad who was clearly in the closet, right? But came from a, a Southern family, is from the deep South. And um, I remember when he told us he was going to be a priest, we were like, come again. Um, and if you think about it, here's a, here's a young man who was closeted, afraid of rejection, afraid of himself too, because like he didn't have any good role models that were queer, who then finds an organization that's like, we will tell you what to do. We will take care of you for the rest of your life. You won't ever have to deal with this gay thing ever. Um, and like, you know, this, like, it, I can understand why it was so attractive for someone like him. Um, do I understand it like 10 years later as I watch him oppress other gay youth and like watch him continue to move this propaganda along? No, but like we're about to touch with Penelope. This is how trauma works. It works in cycles, right? Because when Pete the cop is talking to Penelope, Penelope interrupts him in shock and she says, but I recruited people. Yeah, she is complicit. She's both a victim and complicit. Yeah. And that She's is, both victim and perpetrator. Right. Um, I don't know about you, John, but like as someone, like I, I, I will say that as a privileged white Latina, uh, I know that my life lives on the edge of both complicit and perpetrator of oppression. And, um, but I have like a very real identifying with Penelope moment when she, look, I look back at pictures from 10 years ago, or I look back at anything that is from the time that I was in a cult. Like I went to the March for Life. I shamed women for their like uh, choices. And like 10 years later, 
I've done a lot of reparations work on that, but I still really struggle with where that sits in my life timeline of who yeah. I, of who I hurt, of who, like, what were the like ramifications that I will never know of what I did. But also I, I have simultaneously spent years moving forward with ripples that hopefully go the other way. But I, I mean, I definitely had a moment where I, I identified with Penelope's like very frantic, but like I recruited people. And we see that with Penelope because she, after she learns the hard tea, after, after Pete <laughs> pours a nice cup of hot tea for her, she gets really angry and she says she needs to find the blue bus. Right. And we're back on that adventure. <laughs> we're back with the blue bus people who still have people on it, but that's a whole nother like right. Right. topic. So we move to back to our favorite thruple. I'm sorry, couple now. Rick is looking for whatever made the noise in the apartment. I mean, he's such a stupid, I mean, like men. It's like, <laughs> you know what made the noise, Rick? Well, I'll be, I'll be honest. I thought maybe the dude they killed wasn't dead. Oh my God. Yeah. That, well, like, that's a good idea. That's a good point. Shit. Like watch, he's like walking around, but then very quickly I was like, no, this is about to be a showdown between Rick and Lila. Mm-hmm. So he has a gun and he's walking around. Um, as we know before, Jenna has the dagger. She found the dagger that Rick had from the party where they were going to do the ritualistic purge. Um, and basically Rick's walking around and all of a sudden he sees Lila and then Lila um, you know, it's, you know, he nearly kills her almost. The banging's coming from the outside and it's back to the neighbor's wife who we talked about. And Lila says that the neighbor, her husband is dead. And then Carol's about to be killed. Rick tries to save her and she's dead. That's like a little segue. But then basically all that does is it leads us into the argument where Lick and Lick, whoops, <laughs> where Lila and Rick get into a disagreement. Right. And, um, and I think like it, if we were to go not in order of the show and kind of wrap this part up, right? Um, they get into a disagreement and they start saying things to each other that they cannot forget, right? So like Lila pretty, right? Like Lila pretty much implies that like the baby would never have happened without her. And like Rick pretty much yes. calls for a mistake. He, she, um, questions his masculinity. She goes at him for the basic level of saying, you couldn't have procreated without me. You know, you couldn't, you can't afford your, you know, Jenna's lifestyle without me. Like I'm everything. Like she really goes below the belt. She calls him white trash too. She does call him white trash. She goes back to the level of which um, we saw Rick a few episodes back before Lila got there when he was talking to Jenna saying, I don't want our child to grow up like I did. And he um, comes a little bit further than that into what we see in episode eight, but Lila goes back. She goes right for the heart. Like, it's like, Oh, she just goes. Well, this is it. the first time we hear her dad speaking through her mouth. Yes. Every single version of Lila we've seen has been carefully curated by Lila to get Jenna. But the real Lila is the woman who's like, my father knew you weren't one of us. You reeked of trash. You're white trash. Like you couldn't have squirted without me. Like it's ugly. And like she Rick, goes single white female on her. She seriously, I was like, yo. And like Rick pushes her, but then catches himself and he's like, I'm not doing this, right? Yeah. And he then stops. right. And then we get before we get to the finale of this conflict, we get the final flashback to Lila Skeense. So it's a room full of all white people, right? And Marcy, I have to ask you a question. What do you think the invitation looked like for, for Lila's Ginsé? Well, I'm sure it had like scrolls and some like cutout paper and it was gorgeous and it was gold leafed and she probably went on Pinterest to get the like right like fonts. I mean, like it's really, like this is how we do this. I just wanted to make sure you and I were on the same page. Oh, 100%, 100%. Like, I mean, it's a, so it's a room full of white people. A black maid comes up to Lila as they're bringing out the purge victim, who's this older gentleman. Um, they didn't say who he was, but in my head, he's her, like, horseback riding instructor. Um, but this um, black maid brings her a platter, and it has a dagger and a gun. Um, I, I thought this was uh, important to note. Um, 
I think those were two different versions of who she is, who she could have chosen to be. Um, the gun is a quick death, right? The dagger is like full on, like I'm going in on this shit. And she chooses the gun. And I think that shows to a certain extent that at the beginning, she was still unsure that she could do this and she probably wanted to end it as quickly as possible. Yeah, you see the look in her eye. It's really, um, when she grabs the gun, um, you see it's pretty much the scene is now her. Um, you get a really um, a quick close-up of the purge victim, who's a person of color, um, as well as then you see Catalina looking at her going, this is it. This is the choice. You have to make it. And she shoots. Right. And she shoots, and then we get like a very sly smile. A sly smile. And, and that, that is a hundred percent why Catalina was like, no fucking Stanton Stanton is safe tonight. Yes. And now we understand the full circle. And if you listen to the bonus episode, this is the episode where she's talking about um she came back. They actually wrote this episode for her when she was done filming and she had to come back and film this and really come full circle and close the character and that character's storyline because now you know why Jenna and Rick, when they were begging for Lila to be saved, Catalina said no. Right, right. So then John, who shows up at the bar? Rush Limbaugh. Would have been more interesting. <laughs> Would have been more interesting. So the white vigilante guy that, by the way, who was right? Me. Marcy. Marcy was right again. Um, the most boring storyline because he knew where it was going. Um, he shows up at the bar. Um, he basically tells Miguel, tonight's personal fun for him. And that, you know, the dude is like wondering what's going on. And it's kind of, his storyline is so boring. Um, but basically what happens is um, Miguel um, and him have a conversation. He tells Miguel that this night is really eternal, but that it's always a wonder what comes next. And what you see also is you see a dude at the bar has a printed out gun. Now remember there are no weapons allowed in um, the bar um, and he starts assembling it in the bathroom. And then Penelope um, tells Miguel um, she's angry. We talked about her anger, how she's using it. And she wants to go save the bus. She wants to save her friends um, now that she's been freed um, from the bus and she's learned all that she's learned. Um, and she wants to go do something. And in a quick scene, um, the guy that was making the plastic gun, um, it wants to kill Pete because his, he put his brother in jail because Pete was the cop because it's a cop bar. Um, so you see the cycles of violence and anger really coming out. But during this um, scuffle, um, Penelope then uses the phone and calls uh, the blue uh, cult leader lady. What's her name? Vince? Vance? <laughs> Good leader, Travis. Good leader, Travis. Actually. Gonna, so um, Vance. Right. Okay. So Penelope takes that moment when the plastic gun bro from Texas is all I could think because for people who have been following local and national news, this is an actual debate happening um, right now. There's a guy on t in Texas who wanted to put up the, um, like the code to print these guns, right? Um, and the the Supreme Court has like different courts have tried to step in and like this is the future like even if we're able to to stop it I don't really think we're like once this is out there it's out there but it's uh, already out there right right um, I will say uh, to prove that this guy's a douche she's actually he's being extradited from Thailand for child sex abuse so just shocker Shocker. Shocker that there's a connection between violence and abuse of, of children women. Um, but Penelope does take that moment um, to call good leader Tra Tavis. She goes outside. Clearly the vigilante follows her out. And um, good leader Tavis shows up. My guess is someone paid good money to purge Penelope and she wants to be able to cash in on that money. Because if not, I'm like, why the fuck are you showing up? But honestly, if someone paid like a hundred grand to purge her, like you probably want to find your hit, right? So good leader Tavis comes out and she gives her all the talking points that Penelope has given. But Penelope no longer has these rose colored glasses. And she's like, yo, no, not even a little bit. No. She yells at the people on the bus, like, get get out, get out. And like it's interesting because like good leader Tavis is like, you know, like 
clearly you weren't ready for this. Like when your heart is more open, let me tell you like 10 years of leaving my cult and I still get people who think they have a right to talk to me like that. Um, I was at a wedding like not too long ago. And uh, this woman that I've known since I was 20 something in a cult, um, we, we have some shared history. Um, it's very clear that I, that I have left and I have just a couple connections left, but we were at a wedding and she comes up to me and in the most patronizing voice I've ever heard someone use, she goes, stop being so angry and just come home. And home is the metaphorical home of the cult, the church, all of that. She's like, just come home. Yeah. I was like, that is a very, like, that is a tactic that is used by people to bring you back in. It's the guilt of like, if you weren't so angry, if you weren't so broken, you'd realize that like, you're just being, you know, immature, like come home, let me feel safe with me. I have the power. Um, And then the vigilante shows up. And he clearly followed Penelope out of the bar. He shoots good leader Tavis. (laughs) Like, then does some- After Penelope knocks her out, though. After Penelope knocks her out. Penelope gets a really good hit. Um, Which, good, because I'm really tired of this fucking vigilante taking all of the hits. Um, But then, so John, this is a moment that for me, I didn't anticipate. And I was very glad to see it. Um the vigilante points the gun at Penelope's head and yells, come with me. Like, I'm going to keep you safe. Got to keep you safe. Got to keep you safe. But he has a gun pointed to her head. Yeah. No, no, no. The bar is safe. And he just drags her body into that fucking Winnebago. He puts her in the Winnebago and we're starting to see the real vigilante now. It's actually, um, and we're going to get to it at the at the final scene is what you see is this isn't the final scene but penelope gets put in the bus as he's driving away as miguel comes running out because they hear the gunshots they hear everything the the winnebago the The winnebago that he's driving the rush limbaugh winnebago that this white vigilante named joe um is driving around and you see penelope in the back driving away as miguel yet again loses his sister and you see all the people that this white vigilante that we thought was saving, and then who else was in there? Jane. So the the Winnebago currently has Jane and Penelope. And does it have a couple of the matron saints as well? No, it has those people um, that he saved on the street and then the woman in the house. You're right. So moving forward, so we can kind of wrap this up, we get back to Jenna, Lila, and Rick. Um, Lila is still totally like single white femaleing over here, and she um, does she does she have a gun? Does she reach for? No, gun? basically she hits Rick with a paddle, and he's on the ground. She disarms right, a sorority him. paddle. Sorority paddle. She totally sorority paddles him, and bang, you know is hitting him, and then she has the gun, and she's pointing it at her, and she says it's um, you know she starts lying to herself. You see this violence coming through her. And she demands, um, because Jenna obviously hears all this happening, Jenna comes down and she's saying, tell her that you love me. Tell her that you want to be with me. I mean, everything in her life is broken now and she's lost everything. And it's one of those moments that, um, where she tries to lie to Jenna to get her by saying that like Rick hit her and that he was going to kill her and the baby and that she was saving them. Jenna obviously doesn't believe this, but right away when you think that she's about to shoot Rick, you hear a gunshot. It's a real like kind of like, you know, fake out. And instead of seeing Rick shot, you see Jenna has stabbed Lila um, with, with the dagger. The yeah that is full circle she dies by the hand of her father is how i'm gonna you don't just see her dying you see her like on the floor struggling to breathe yeah it's really like i mean yeah it was an intense death and then the obviously the gun goes off in her hand but the knife is what ends this fight and then i thought we were gonna get a breather and then we hear this like we hear that imminent per like it's almost like the what is it, the Winds of Casimir or the the Lannister like song in Game of Thrones? Like I immediately knew something was about to go very, very wrong. And so um, we get from this scene to, it's almost like immediate that we, like the, what, the Stanton security system 
goes off and you hear security system disabled, security system disabled. Yeah, the sand in security system. So take a drink because we're referencing movies. <laughs> Sucks. I keep dropping shit in this room. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, so it's the sand and security system that is disabled and you're like, wait, who disabled it? Like, who disabled it? What's going on? And then we get a very clear shot. The first shot is of Rick. He is hogtied, shackled, mouth covered, and he's been, he's been dragged out of the house. He's, he's like looking towards the house from the curb, completely tied up, very battered and bruised. And we see the fucking vigilante dragging Jenna out of her house. She is shackled. She has her mouth covered. You can hear the visceral screaming. And all I wanted to do, and this is like the wrong reaction to have, but I was so happy this was happening because I cannot stand the idea of that vigilante being a hero. Of course, a dude who's done nothing but listen to the NFFA Rush Limbaugh is not okay. And I'm so glad two things that we're finally dismantling the idea of him as a hero, but also our three storylines are about to converge in that Winnebago and wherever they've all converged. They're all now in the same Winnebago. And the only person that's not in that Winnebago is Miguel. Right. And the thing is, I am okay with Miguel coming in as one of the people to save the day. Um, my guess is he comes in with Pete the cop, but I don't think Jane, Jenna, and Penelope are some like wilting flowers. I think they will also have agency in whether or not they get out. So, And that's the episode. And that's the episode. Um, so Marcy, what do you think is going to happen in the last two episodes? So... I honestly would be very surprised if all three of our heroines make it out. Um, really? I really would. I think, um, I think The Purge is not a show known for letting people live. Um, like, not everyone lives in The Purge. So I honestly think that Jane is the one who will die. And this is why. I don't think they're going to kill a woman who's pregnant. <laughs> Um, it is USA. Right. Um, and Jane, unfortunately, is the least sympathetic of the three because she ordered a hit on someone on Purge Night. Yeah. Uh, I think they're all three going to live. I think definitely it's like Miguel or Rick is going to die. Oh, interesting. I could see Rick easily dying for Jenna. Easily. Yeah. And that's how he yeah. brings himself to her before he dies. We know uh, the right vigilante guy's a goner. 100%. That dude's gone. And if he doesn't, we're going to do a whole special episode about how this show took us for a wild ride and we're so angry. Agreed. I think Penelope could die as reparations for what she's done. Um, I just think that would be a really dark turn when um, I think like, you, could, you can have some, some type of like reparations done where she doesn't have to die. Um, I, think, I think honestly... Pete the cop is a very easy kill as well. Um, Cause you know him and Miguel are gonna go try to find this vigilante guy. Um, yeah, I definitely think we're in for a very concise one setting storyline really between Miguel and Pete the cop and then wherever this van is or this Winnebago is heading. I think we're gonna have shots of the, um, the rescue and shots of the torture and, and whatever that looks like. Um, I think the only thing I feel comfortable with a prediction on is Jenna and Garbanzo make it out. Everyone else, I think, is on the chopping table. Yeah, I guess we'll find out more next week. I think we will. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, it's always a pleasure purging with you. <laughs> it's always a pleasure purging with you. And thanks. To, this episode was a long one, but there was a lot to pack in because the episodes um, are very tightly knit now with the storylines and they're going on for a longer time. So thank you for sticking with us. Right. There's so many details. Um, definitely hit us up on Twitter. Um, get ready because like we've said before, um, we don't focus solely on The Purge. The Purge was just the first season of our podcast. Um, we have our eye on a different show to cover next, an entire season of a brand new show. Um, we also have plans to drop some um, like kind of contained sets of episodes on some more um, pop culture narratives that we are following. So stay tuned for a lot of info, but definitely um, we have two episodes left. This ends on election night, which is 
I mean, Jesus Christ, if that doesn't feel right, I don't know what does. I don't know either, but I'm hungry for more. So John, will we be recording that last episode drunk on champagne celebrating or drunk on like whiskey? I don't know. I made some predictions <laughs> in 2016. Let's just say come prepared people. Right. Let us know on Twitter what you want us to drink during the recording of this last podcast. Uh, ay, ay, ay. All right, y'all. Have a wonderful week and happy purging. Happy purging. <laughs>